Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Joining us today is first-time guest Emily from TV John. Thanks for coming on today, Emily. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about vampires. Sadly, it is the last week of Spooktober 3, Son of Spooktober. I will be very happy when I don't have to do that every week anymore. It will always be in our heart. <laughs> we celebrate Spooktober year-round here. It has been... Wait, we celebrate what year-round? Spooktober! It has been a ride this year. We have covered everything from meta horror to hammer horror to TV horror and creature features. But as you know, we can't leave Spooktober without a discussion of vampires. We here at Monkey Off My Backlog are vampire-friendly, so we're doing Anne Rice Week. Before we get started talking about Anne Rice and the monkeys that we consumed this week, wink at the microphone there, let's talk a little bit about Anne Rice and how we came to her. So, Emily, how did you discover Anne Rice? What is your history with her? My history with Anne Rice is that my mom has always been a very big vampire person since I was a kid. Like, we watched Buffy, like, as it was airing. I was too young to be doing that, but we were doing that. And my mom, I think, had Anne Rice books. And, like, we watched Queen of the Damned, which I think was my first actual introduction to Vampire Chronicles. But I think I borrowed my mom's interview with a vampire at some point in middle school and... I adored it. I loved it so much. I read Interview with a Vampire. I think it's been, I know it's been over 20 years ago at this point. I always meant to get back to the Witching Hour series, which I was told I would probably like more than the Vampire Chronicles. I've read three or four of the Vampire Chronicles. I eventually quit for reasons we'll talk about later. I will say something else that I'll bring up in the episode is that I went to college with one of Anne Rice's neighbors. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a really interesting, fun fact that we'll talk about a little bit later. I had no idea. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast. The only exposure to Anne Rice that I really had was watching the film, the 1994 film with Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. I watched it as part of a gothic literature class in undergrad. We actually went over to my professor's house and watched a bunch of gothic horror on Halloween. And so that was one of the ones that we watched. And I remember talking about her and like her impact on the vampire genre, which I want to talk about in this episode. But I I hadn't read the book. I, I had watched Queen of the Damned. I think I watched that mainly for Aaliyah at that point, but I really, I remember enjoying it, even though it's not a good movie. I always meant to come back and read more of her stuff because I love vampires. And I thought that the film presented a very interesting view of vampires, but I did want to start with Anne Rice and her impact on the horror slash vampire genre. When looking up stuff about her, I did not find it surprising that she had this like lifelong struggle with Catholicism, especially Irish Catholicism. She was a Catholic in her youth, then she became lapsed, then she came back to it. Then she, for reasons of not liking the way that the church handled certain social issues, she sort of went back away from that later in her life. And I think that perspective of really struggling with where does, like what 
what kind of meaning does faith bring to life? Like what, how does faith fit into this particular genre? I think really is one of her biggest impacts on, on vampire genre, along with a couple of other tropes that I definitely want to talk about. I I think that is true. I think her struggle with Catholicism and faith is huge. Like I think cannot be understated. And like, it's interesting because you can, as you, I have heard, I've only read Interview with the Vampire, but I have heard that if you move forward in Chronicles, that like you can tell when she was really into Catholicism and when she wasn't through like the types of storytelling she's doing, which is interesting. But I think one of her biggest impacts is really making vampires very sexy. In, and like obviously there's like Dracula kind of does this, but Dracula's doing other things too with like outsiderness as well and like that kind of thing because these books are books are from vampire perspectives and they're sexy i think that like really brings something like hadn't maybe existed quite, quite as strongly it's an interesting point about the sexiness because before Anne Rice, I think a lot of vampire stuff at least the experience i have with vampire stuff is very stoker related like it's very like vampires are monsters they are evil they are outside of you know the the religion you know they're outside of faith they're sexy but they're still monsters like they're pure evil and they must be defeated whereas i think rice's vampires they're still monsters they still do monstrous things but they're very complex they have these internal conflicts they have this interiority that i think had been really missing from a lot of the vampire genre um i mean you as much as i love christopher lee's dracula or bella lugosi's dracula there's not an interiority to those characters like they're they're like you said they're the outsider like they're the other and the films are not looking at them from their perspective whereas Anne rice is sort of turning that around and saying like okay like what if we treated these like real people who had you know these powers and these you know were able to live for this long so I think that they're a lot more tragic in that way because you can see that interiority. And I think you can see that in almost all vampire fiction that's come after that. I mean, you can see that in Bram Stoker's Dracula. You can see it in Twilight. You can see it in The Historian. Um, I read a lot of urban fantasy with vampires. You can see it in everything. All of that has like that influence on it. I mean, it's not like she invented the idea that vampires are sexy, but, you know... We, we definitely don't think of vampires the way that we do now if it's not for her. We just rewatched Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula the other day, right? And so, I mean, my main takeaway from that is the vampire brides. Always has been, always will be. If you take the exact opposite of that, everything that those scenes are, and you turn those into a vampire narrative, it's Anne Rice. <laughs> I, I know you have written in your notes something about homoeroticism. Yes. It is, it is, she does not turn it up to a 10. She turns it way past 11. Her homoeroticism is like at a 17. <laughs> and it is like, and we've talked about this, about how the male gaze is a problematic concept. How Anne Rice, a, a cis woman, Manages to out male gaze everyone <laughs> and make it as homoerotic as possible, more than we've ever seen in the history of ever. It's a feat. It's also why it doesn't work for me. 
Right. Right. That's that's the resident the thing. lesbian. It, it's just it's just not. Eh. Right. It's fine. I'll tell you when we talk about the witching hour a little bit later, which is of course not a vampire novel, so the contrarian of the podcast, I suppose. The New Orleans stuff is great. My parents love New Orleans. It's probably their favorite place in the country. I never, I've been there once. It was after Katrina. So, but I mean, I get it. Like, just having spent a little time there, I'm like, okay, I understand this now. I have a better appreciation for what she's doing. As you know, I love vampires. I love the idea of vampires. They are by by far the best of the quote-unquote monsters. Definitely. They, it is It is not even a competition. You know that I think Todd Browning's Dracula is the best of the original universals. We've talked about that. The things that Anne Rice has contributed to horror and vampires and all that stuff and the South are all great. Right. I was I, about to say, like, True Blood and Vampire Diaries both kind of fall in that yeah. tradition of saying, like, okay, well, let's talk about Southern Gothic. Like, let's do and that. See, and, and I will tell you, Members of my family love Anne Rice. You know, this is what surprises I, me so much but, about her is that so many people's like, like older members of their family that you couldn't get to like watch anything with vampires in it love her. But see, I think I know the reason for this. There, it's two reasons. First of all, especially folks in the South, right? They appreciate that. Southern fiction, that regionalism, the the local color, you know, those all those things we learned in American Lit that we were like, uh-huh, blah, 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 keep going, right? They love that stuff, and that's great. That's good for them. Somebody should. These are the people who love Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil for the exact same reason. But also, these people are, like, expert level at ignoring the gays, <laughs> Right, they these, can read it and these, just filter the, the out the people subtext. People who love the Southern Gothic and Southern color and Southern regionalism are also just pros at thinking that gay people don't exist. <laughs> so, if you can, and of course Anne Rice is not writing gay subtext; it is very much gay text. But because right. they're so good at ignoring it, and it's funny to me because as I was reading about her stuff, there was a lot about like. Oh, well, her vampires are like allegories for like gayness. And I'm like, I don't know if you read the same book that I did. I'm not sure how allegorical this is. Within that, like while it is text, it's also because and I don't know if this changed, but I think this was true. It's true in interview with the vampire, but I don't know if it changes later, obviously. But like vampires don't actually have like intercourse sex. Like it's it is sexual but like it is not necessarily like in and of itself like the act of sex and because the language especially for interview with vampire is set in the 1700s and like the language is much more flowery even if it's being told to daniel in the 70s like the way that they're talking to each other and about each other within the actual like historical part of it is similar but removed from how we would interpret it in a modern context i think it makes it so much easier for people who don't want to engage with the gay or like the queer text of it to be like i pretend it's not happening it's fine i don't see it (laughs) the other couple things that i really wanted to mention before we get into talking about the novel were that she also really introduces the idea that writers could adapt to vampire rules in whatever way that they wanted. 
Because before that, in most films, it's like we have to stick to Stoker's mythology. We have to stick to the garlic and the crosses and the, you know, sleeping in a coffin and rising at night and all of that stuff. Here, it's kind of like, well, I can write about a vampire that's not Dracula. I could write about vampires that aren't affected by garlic or crosses. You know, like the idea that she could take what rules she wanted and leave the ones she didn't. And I think that is obviously had a huge impact on the genre as well. However, she also had a very complicated relationship with her fan communities. I don't know if either of you know this, but she hated fan fiction and often threatened fanfic authors with lawsuits Mm -hmm. um, to the point where a lot of people, a lot of people kind of credit both her and George R. R. Martin with some of the issues with getting published, your fan fiction published online um, because they were, are, were and are both very litigious about their fan fiction. Yeah, it's it's very messy. Like, yes, they are both like the two people who, when people talk about fan fiction and like fan engagement in a creative kind of way, like they're the two people who are like, people always bring up. And I think that her son is less so now since her death. But it's so interesting because I... I, I it's weird because from some point I understand that perspective of like she came from a time period, obviously both before the internet, but like zine culture for fan fiction still existed. Like you still had the creation of like the Star Trek zine fan fiction community existing. So it's not as though it wasn't heard of, but I do. I get, I understand though, like I sympathize with, but I don't feel connected to the idea that like, if people are writing fan fiction, they're stealing your content because obviously those people aren't getting paid for it as well, which is the whole thing about fan fiction. And I just think it's so interesting that she like drilled so hard into it. And like, I don't know what that means for her, like in her brain, but like, I'm just like, okay, maybe chill, but... I don't have much of a foothold at all in fan fiction culture, but it just makes me think, what were people writing? Because you can't write slash fiction about these vampires. Because I that's mean, you could. what well, that's what it is though. Right. Oh, you you're saying that the book itself yeah, is slash it, fiction. It would kind of be a hat on a hat. So so what I'm thinking is I there's an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where two of the main characters move out to the suburbs and they start to live together and the homoeroticism goes away and it becomes like a very straight domestic kind of suburban thing. And so I'm like, is that what the fan fiction was? Is that it? But also one of the reasons she had such a stern relationship with these people is, so you know how bad HOAs are? Well, in New Orleans, you might you might say that New Orleans had the original HOAs. So the 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 garden district that she lived in, she had to leave. That's interesting. Because her neighbors got so angry at her for doing something that would invite people to come to their area and make noise. Oh, okay. She her fans forced her from her home. In a way. So did she see that as like 
transferring over to fan fiction, maybe? I I would assume so. Interesting. I, I, I would either. think so. Because as you said, Emily, like slash fiction already existed, especially for Star Trek, which is a show that has a lot of gay subtext to it. And so it's just like, you know, okay, like you are aware of this, right? That that queer people like to make fanfic about people. I don't know. It's just it's maybe funny. she wasn't aware of it, though. Maybe she wasn't. I don't know. For someone who's writing a book about this, though, I feel like I don't you'd know. have to be aware of it. No, I don't. I don't think so. It's also interesting because like so much of the Star Trek zine stuff for so long until there were a couple of stories, but until like a very specific like point were kind of genfic too. So like it's also just like people playing in that world. It becomes even more weird, I guess, if she did know about it, that like it would be it could be genfic or it could be slash like it could be like. A transformation of what you're doing but it could also just be people being like i wrote myself a specific vampire and they live in the vampire chronicles world and maybe she just doesn't like that i don't know <laughs> i i also think too i just want to say if there's anything that i've learned about the lgbtq plus community including the friends of is that is that every member of that community and their friends know everything about the community. There is no compartmentalization <laughs> in that community. That is what I've learned. So yes, it would be very strange for Anne Rice not to know every nook and cranny of that community. Okay. I take your point. All right. I mean, I feel like we're already getting into talking about the novel, so let's go ahead and talk about the novel, uh, which I read for the first time for this podcast. So just a little background. It was published in 1976. We talked about how it's set in the 70s, even though it's basically an extended flashback over a 200-year period. It's actually based on a short story that she wrote in 1968, which I had no idea. Like She wrote it for like a fiction class, and one of her classmates liked it so much, they were like, hey, you should make a novel out of that. So she wrote this novel. It's her debut novel, and it's the beginning of The Vampire Chronicles, which I think has... I think I looked this up, but then I didn't write it 73 down. 73 novels. <laughs> Too many books. <laughs> yeah, it's like 12 or 13, I think. Anyway. And then you can ask, are the, are the books about Christ part of the Vampire Chronicles? And like you start getting these crossovers. Like I know that the witches books like crossover with the vampire books eventually in, in the Chronicles, which I think is an interesting concept. But it's very straightforward, actually. A reporter interviews a vampire named Louis about his life since he was turned in 1791 by Lestat. I I have to say, like, just starting this book was really nice because I just love the pacing of it. It just, like, it, it the interview just starts. Like, he just starts asking the vampire questions. And I appreciate that as a as the beginning of a book because I think sometimes books have a little bit too much exposition about their beginning. Like, how did they meet? How did this reporter learn that there were vampires? And I just like that it's like, nope, this guy knows. He's there. He's asking questions. They don't actually name him in the book, but his name is Daniel Malloy. He shows up in other Vampire Chronicle books, I guess. Yeah, he eventually, I, I think in the Vampire Lestat maybe, or in Queen of the Damned, he ends up getting turned by Armand. Like Armand like stalks him for a while um, while he's trying to find Lestat because he gets like obsessed with Lestat, like trying to find him because Louis won't turn him. Yeah, that's the end of the interview. Yeah. Where he's like, I won't turn you. And he's like, well, I'll find Lestat. (laughs) 
Yeah, so he goes and he's like trying to find Lestat and then I think Armand is like, ooh, interesting person. Um, and stalks him around for a while and then turns him there together for a while and then they end up breaking up. There's lots of getting together and breaking up in these books, I feel like. On and off relationships between all of the characters. Yeah, so I, I really liked the pacing of this book. I didn't feel like there were any parts of this book that were really slow. I didn't always appreciate the narration, which I will get to in a minute, but I, I did actually really like that this book was just very straightforward. Like, this is an interview. This person is talking about their life over 200 years. I mean, it feels like the kind of interview you would read, like in a newspaper or a magazine. Like, this is the process of getting that information. It's just about a vampire. I will say, though, I was, since I'd seen the film and I had actually watched the first episode of the show, which we're going to talk about during this episode, I was surprised that the characters seemed very different in the book than what I was expecting, even based on the, the 1994 film, especially Lestat, who comes across as kind of boorish and not as sexy, <laughs> just very like, at least in this book, he's very like uneducated and angry and like mad about it. And he's like constantly taunting Louis and like it, it comes across as him not being nearly as fascinating of a character as he is in the film and in uh, the television show. Although I will say that both in the film and so far in the television show, the plot is pretty faithfully adapted, which I think is interesting. I wasn't necessarily put off by it, but it was a surprise to me to be like, oh, like this is a very different characterization of this person than I had believed so far. I do worry that if somebody had seen the show or the film and they tried to read this, that they would be put off by it. I think it's interesting because I, I think you're correct. I, I haven't reread it in such a long time. I've read parts of it, like snippets of it since, but I haven't reread it in its totality since. And I think that's true. And I think that part of that can be contributed to Lestat is her little baby. Like, he is the vampire we are chronicling. He is the little baby. She loved him so much. <laughs> um, and so, like, she ends up, I think, through time and through the, like, multiple, multiple books that he is in. Um, I think ends up romanticizing him and like creating this persona. So I think he's probably closer to what we would imagine in later books. But obviously I haven't read them, so I can't confirm that. But I think that is true. And because Anne wrote the screenplay for the 94 movie and so much time had passed, I think that those like things melded together for her interpretation of Lestat. And so the film version, which I, I would say probably most people, like, I I would be interested in the numbers and, like, how many people know about that story from the book versus how many people know about it from the movie with the very famous actors, you know? So many famous actors. So many. It's so wild. So many in that movie. Um, <laughs> it's wild. Uh, wild casting, but okay. But yeah, like I, I think a lot of people view, you know, the Tom Cruise version of that character because for so long, the Tom Cruise or the, or even the Stuart Townsend, like if the four people who watched Queen of the Damned, you and I and <laughs> the other two people, my mom and someone else, <laughs> like he is sexy and like doing whatever. He's not very queer in that movie, but like he is sexy and like doing whatever. 
so like the cultural star, right? legacy. He he is. He yeah. is. Uh, I think he is in the vampire list that too. Like, I think it starts in that one. But yeah, like I think she has because of time and like her ability to like kind of edit and change how we view both visually and in text Lestat like that has kind of changed retroactively like what we're looking at when we're looking at the original book which I think is very fascinating the film was of course directed by Neil Jordan and this would be the only film that I've actually seen of Neil Jordan's now interestingly I will probably in the next year be writing about one of his other films because he also directed right before interview with the vampire he directed the crying game oh okay uh oh, he's also done uh the end of the yeah he's also did the end of the affair and uh the good thief both of which have ray fines in them he, he's a very particular director is i guess what i'm trying to say i don't know anything about their working relationship but I do know that the reason many of these works have not been adapted yet is that at some point she decided, I am not going to let anyone else adapt these until somebody's willing to take the whole thing and they are going to listen to what we tell them. And of course, she was super happy that this deal happened and she died before it was brought to fruition. And so I know Christopher and um, the other child, uh, whose name I can't remember. I say child like they're not older than all of us. Uh, but <laughs> right. um, but, but I, I, I wonder how much of a connection there is between those two things. You know, it's really fun who portrays, you know, Lestat and Louis in the, in, in the movie. But it is really interesting to think about what was lost in translation or added in translation to that original film. And then that is what the vast majority of people who know Interview know about. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. And I think both of you have sort of answered this question is that, like I, like I said, I haven't read Vampire Lestat or any of the subsequent books. But I would have guessed, based on this book, that Lestat as a character evolved a lot like Spike does in Buffy, how he was yes. just supposed to be like a one-off season villain and he's if you look at that season he's like very different than the character that we see him evolve into later and so I just kind of assumed that maybe is what happened with Lestat so it's interesting that you that you confirmed that for me um because yeah I I was just kind of like this is this is not the character that I thought I was going to be reading about like he even has like he's not as old as he is in subsequent adaptations like at the beginning of the book he has a father who's dying who's like human and blind and he doesn't know his son is a vampire and so it it just it's fascinating to me that how different this character is louis is pretty much the same like louis is very much that neurotic i guess is probably the best word broody you know person who is having basically a 200 year long identity crisis <laughs> over who he is and what the meaning of life is I, I will say the adaptation which we'll talk about in a bit the the new one has been very kind to him so yes. far yes which is saying a lot because he comes off as pretty whiny but very nice to him i have two things to say about the narration 
The first one is I am very impressed by her narration style in this because it feels very 19th century, which I think is what she was going for. Um, It feels very much like Shelley's Frankenstein or some other like gothic novel where you have this narrator explaining these horrible things that have happened. She uses very much the same language, the same style, which isn't surprising because she said that her biggest influences were mostly Charles Dickens, John Milton, Shakespeare, the Bronte sisters, like she, Arthur Conan Doyle, like she was very interested in trying to make this sound, like you said, like somebody who grew up in a very different century and who had different exposure to literary styles. And I'm very impressed by that imitation Although, just like I find the narrator in Shelley's Frankenstein, I find Louis to be very annoying at times. And I believe that's on purpose. I believe that just like in Shelley's Frankenstein, we're supposed to eventually, as we read the book, disdain Victor Frankenstein and admire the creature. And I think that's true in this book where we're supposed to eventually disdain Louis and admire Lestat. I agree with that. Like you said... There's no, like, actual sex in this book. It's all very much about killing together, about the sensuality of, like, uh, being together, taking life together, drinking. Like, all of that is supposed to have those homoerotic overtones, which is very much in a vampire tradition. I mean, I talked about this when we did our Hammer episode on Christopher Lee's Dracula Uh, You know, even though this is definitely taking that to a 17, as Sam would say, the idea of like Dracula penetrating another man with his teeth, you know, is supposed to be like a fear of that like homoerotic um, type of contact. And so like I I do find that interesting that they're uh, that she is conflating hunting and killing with sexuality in a lot of ways. Because, yeah, you do get those moments where Louis will talk about Lestat or Armand and and be like, you know, yeah, like, I wanted this person. I was in love with this person, but not physically. Like, I wanted to, like, have mind sex with them, basically, is <laughs> basically kind of how it comes off. Something else that I find interesting, going back to, like, Anne's control over um, trying to get, essentially, this made, is apparently for... A little while she considered making one of them into a woman oh. in order to like actually get it made like she she was like is it too much that it's two men like maybe that's why this isn't like happening which i think plays into like it i think getting kind of pulled back in the film adaptation which so many thoughts i have so many thoughts about all of that but that's also interesting in that that also changes like i i wonder if if they would have had like if there would have been more explicit sex stuff going on cuz in the new show there is sex like they have broken the Anne Rice like only bites thing working off of memory this isn't a studied subject yet i mean again i'm i'm going to keep hinting at something that's going to happen next year cuz i don't like to talk about things until they've already started to happen but I do remember, without Philadelphia in the crying game, which is, again, Neil Jordan, the way that you can represent gay people in movies changed right at this time. And so, in in some ways, not only could you not make 
this adaptation before this early into mid 90s time period this adaptation is one of the things that opened the door for more gay characters on screen so i i think it does matter and i'm not just saying screen period obviously i'm talking about mainstream big budget filmmaking with people like tom cruise and brad pitt Right. And Christian Slater and, and, and right. Kristen Dunst and yeah, all yeah. of and Antonio I mean, Banderas. Right. And if you skip over into Philadelphia, you've got Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks. You know, so this is this is the era of A list people making movies about gay characters. Who isn't Antonio Banderas in both of those movies? Is he? He's in an interview, right? We talked about yeah. this earlier. Yeah, he plays yeah. our mom. <laughs> that's fun anyway of course he's an Almdivar regular so that makes sense and, and and that just goes to prove you know that that some people in in Hollywood were much more comfortable with these kinds of roles than others in some ways it's kind of amazing that Tom Cruise did this I'm sure Brad Pitt was fine uh, <laughs> so but I guess the thing is to say, when you start thinking about how this was adapted and then readapted, it couldn't be anything but what it was when it was. Which is a very interesting thing to think about, both when the novel was originally published and, you know, 2022, when we're seeing this adaptation happen again. There may not be a point to any of that. It's just interesting. Yeah, no, I I absolutely think so. I also think, I mean, this novel, like you said, made me want to go to New Orleans. Like, it was very, like, it. it's very clear that she lived there, and it's very clear that she really loved it as a city because she writes it just so lovingly, and she's clearly done research on how the city changed over time. Like, it, it is a masterclass in writing a attractive setting, However, I also really like that she thinks a lot about where vampires get money. I know that's like a weird thing to like really like about this this book, but I think sometimes vampires are so associated with aristocracy and like being rich that it we kind of forget I don't know, like the practicality of it, which kind of reminded me of the film Near Dark where like the vampires are poor and they're all like living out of a van basically together. Because there are parts of this where they are really rich and then parts of this where they're really poor and like they're having to like hide out in cemeteries and stuff. And so like that I thought was very interesting the way that she invested in like those little details. I do want to talk very briefly before we move on to the show about Claudia, who I think is such an interesting character and so upsetting of a character at the same time. Um, yeah. mainly because of the way that she fits into this like little family, um, because it's supposed to be like this mockery of like a family, a family unit, right? Like the idea that like there are two dads and, and then there's this little girl, but she's like an eternal child. And so she won't, and she's like five, I think is when they, how old they say she is. She's so young. Yeah. She's like, she has no concept of being able to like actually be an adult, which is also like very upsetting like she has because her mind ages but she she can't ever look like an adult it's so upsetting yeah and she doesn't even she doesn't even remember like that's how young she is she has to ask Lestat and and Louis how she was turned like who turned me like what how did that happen and so 
yeah, the one of the things that I wanted to say is that she actually wrote Rice wrote this novel shortly after the death of her daughter Michelle, who died around the same age um, mm. as Claudia, and she specifically said like this was like her kind of working through some of those things about grief and like she want she wanted this character in this because she was thinking a lot about her daughter which is a very strange way of <laughs> paying tribute to your daughter I think because this character yeah she's like stuck in this like little girl's body but she's been alive for like I think it's 80 years by like mid novel and the relationship between her and Louie especially is so odd because they love each other, but their relationship is not a father-daughter relationship, partially because she's, like, way more cool than Louis ever will be. But, <laughs> but like, she, like, she, he calls her lover, and they talk about how, like, they're basically married, which is a very upsetting, like, way of talking about yeah. someone who looks like a child, even though she's, like, 80 years old. I don't know if this is something that, it's fascinating because, yeah, this is a problem that comes up, I think, in a lot of vampire fiction. Like, what if a child was turned? Like, how would that work? But at the same time, it's just kind of like, it's almost like Anne Rice took the mind sex thing a little bit too far here. But I don't know. What what do you all think about this character? It's so funny. I Until you just mentioned that, I forgot that that is kind of the relationship in the book because the every adaptation of it. I mean, there's two, I guess, but really is like, no, but what if it's father daughter? Because that makes it less weird and we should do that. Yeah. Um, in addition to How about they don't sleep in a coffin together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in addition to like also obviously aging Claudia up as well in both adaptations, which I think is a good move, both things for the adaptation, but it is very weird. It's also very interesting. I didn't know that about her daughter, which makes it yeah. even weirder. But okay. yeah, Anne Rice, Queen of Weird. Well, no, I mean she's just the queen of the Southern Gothic in the late twentieth century. Southern Gothic does have a lot to do with twisted yeah. families. You, you say weird, I say Southern Gothic. That's potato, fair. potato. It's really, <laughs> and I mean you, you bring this back to. To Stoker, right? Stoker had his obsessions. Yeah. Uh, with with and 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 Coppola brings those forward in Dracula, which came out around the same time as the first interview adaptation. He was very much thinking about science and technology and those things, and how those are oppositional forces to superstition, which is why he leans so heavily on those things. But Rice is writing in a different time. And she is bringing a lot of those. It, it's kind of like it makes me think about Studio 54 disco gay subculture in New York. And this is like the New Orleans equivalent of it in the 70s when she wrote the novel. They're very much of their time and of their places. That still doesn't explain Claudia, but... <laughs> I mean, and I think the the but exercise here think, yeah, is but... how do you do a long term relationship between two people, but one of them stuck in the body of a child? Like, because there's even a scene in the book where she asks him about sex, and he doesn't like not not like she wants sex, but she asks him about like the experience of sex, 
and he doesn't want to answer her because it fi- she fi- he finds it too awkward to answer her about that. But the whole scene is supposed to highlight the fact that they have this long-term relationship, but it can never be physical. And that's like something she can't give him or he can't give her. And so like it's supposed to be tragic because of the inability to have that kind of relationship. Yeah, and it's also talked about Stoker, but it's also Mary Shelley, right? Oh, this is yeah. also carrying forward the concept of wrong motherhood. Right. Like yeah. this is this is somebody who's not gonna understand what that means, trying it and then failing spectacularly. Which is something we're not very interested in anymore. And, and I, I will say this is not the only time we see this. I, I've mentioned before other vampire books do this. I don't know if you've read the these books, Emily, but have you read the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter? I haven't. I no, I have not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the first book is called Guilty Pleasures. Yeah, it's an urban fantasy book. I it the setting is St. Louis, right? I mean, it's like supposed to be like a Midwestern type of thing. And it's about a vampire hunter, Anita Blake. But the first book is called Guilty Pleasures, and the antagonist, Nikolaus, is like a seven-year-old girl vampire. And so there's a lot about that that's supposed to be like Claudia, but she's like thousands of years old. Like she's older than any of the any of the other vampires and she's very powerful uh, because of that. But there's a lot, I see that as either a direct homage to like Claudia or like kind of playing on the same themes. Like what Mm -hmm. if Claudia had survived a thousand years and was like in charge of a lot of vampires now, (laughs) basically. We've already started talking about adaptations. Let's move on to the new show, which you are writing about Emily for TV, John. Is that right? Yes. So I'm I'm doing a very obnoxious thing, which I didn't ask Ryan about. I just did and then said, I hope it's okay, uh, which is <laughs> I, am, I am writing my I'm doing weekly reviews and I'm writing them as though I'm being interviewed by Movie John in the style of Daniel interviewing uh, Louis. <laughs> I love that. that. That's really great. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to be annoying about it. Seems good. <laughs> Which is, it has been kind of freeing just because, like, I haven't, like, obviously I'm thinking about it like I would be writing normal reviews, but I also get to speak even more in my normal voice how I would just, like, talk about things, which has been really nice. Yeah, so I, obviously, like, I've liked Interview with the Vampire for a long time, and I will always be sad that this is not a Brian Fuller show. (laughs) who is I think my favorite showrunner I adore him but that man cannot be staying on a show he simply cannot but he had been developing I think it was originally just going to be called Vampire Chronicles with Christopher Rice um before and I think before Anne's death they had been developing it and then something happened as Diane Fuller stuff and that kind of fell through I think Christopher Rice was going to adapt it by himself anyway. He posted, I, I linked it out, he posted a pilot, paid like the front page of his pilot, which I think is really interesting, where it was going to be called The Vampire Lestat as a show rather than Vampire Chronicles, which, a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Very interesting for him. Thank you so much, sir. I would love to read that and know, know what's going on. But... The show is currently, like, it was developed and then showrun, is being showrun by a guy named Roland Jones. And he's really interesting because, like, he, he, like, co-EP'd on Boardwalk Empire. 
Um, he's a really interesting, like, career. But Boardwalk Empire and United States of Terra. And then he EP'd by himself on the Exorcist TV show that happened that I've, I've heard interesting things about. Oh. And then the new Perry Mason, he also EP'd. All of those things, like, also make sense to me in terms of, like, other than the very queer text. Well, I guess United States of Terra a bit, but those th- the other three in terms of time make sense to me for him writing the pilot for Interview the Vampire and, like, creating that, which I think is really interesting. I, I don't know much about the development to get it to AMC, which is such a, to me, as a TV person, a very interesting place for it to live. Are they, like, looking for a replacement for The Walking Dead? It's, like, that's the only thing well, I can think of. They are. I was good. They're looking for a replacement for The Walking Dead and for Vince Gilligan. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I that's forgot correct. about that. But they're, they're very much... It, I, I think it's pretty clear that they're doing... They're trying to figure out what to do after The Walking Dead because they're doing... Oh, what did they... The Immortal Universe is... Like, when you watch the show, the first thing that comes up is this, like, card for the immortal universe, I think is what it's called, which is they're adapting the witch books as well. So they're going to, like, do all of the things. Alexandria Daddario is going to be in the witch show. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for her to, like, helm her own show for a while. Yeah, to them I say good luck. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. So, yeah, that... fascinating to me how many episodes of the show are are out as of recording this okay so this is also what's stupid and i hate this is airing on amc there have been i think four episodes i think the fifth episode i think the fourth episode is airing tonight on amc however on amc plus they are a week ahead tell me how that makes sense very confusing because we've we watched the third ep- we watched the quote-unquote latest episode this morning which ends with claudia like our first glimpse and then you know clicking over into uh the notes for today i'm like what did you travel through to no it's amc plus <laughs> amc plus it's a baffling to me i don't really understand i appreciate it because i get to watch it but like I'm very confused by the decision. I think it's them pushing AMC Plus, just trying to get people to download it. But I think it's very confusing because I'm just like, well, we have to stay on top of it because everyone is tweeting up a storm. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so airing on AMC, episode four will be airing, but up to episode five is up currently. I have not watched episode five yet are on AMC Plus, which messy but show is the show so it's fine we're watching the... it through youtube tv oh, and yeah. and the little um when you when you pause the counter is a coffin Which instead I, of a little half i appreciate i yeah. love that kind of thing when they do that yeah what do you think about this adaptation so far give us the give us the overview i love it i think it rolled <laughs> it is kind of everything that i i really wanted it to be I think the, so they confirmed, it's also interesting because I, obviously I have like a thousand questions based on, because they have changed the time period um, and they've moved it into the 1910s from the late 1700s. And 
I had a question, which was if Lestat also, his age, moved with everybody's age, which it did. They and that just recently. He doesn't have an extra 200 years on his life. He, he has the same amount, which I, I think is interesting. And obviously, they changed Louis and Claudia's race, which, like, I am a white person, but other Black reviewers have been like, it's good. We like it so far. Hopefully they don't fuck it up. Roland Jones is also a white person, so we'll see how he continues to do this. And I also am very happy with with the explicit likeness of the queer story. Both explicit in that like you cannot miss that it exists. Like it it's just it is. But also like we're doing sexy explicit content, true blood style, and it's fun, and I like that. So I'm I'm very happy with um, a lot of the major like changes. I think have been really interesting, and they've I think done a good job of like rationalizing why they change certain things or like giving good reason within the text for why those things are changed or making them interesting. Like the fact that this is the second interview is fucking I I. I didn't know that I was going to be obsessed with that, but I really am. I love that Daniel is older, like, he's an old man. He's already interviewed him in the 70s, so, like, it's just so interesting. What a choice. I have a question for you about that. Yes. So, this actor, Eric Bogosian, who is a character actor, he's been in many, many things. Yes. I knew I recognized that voice because I would recognize it. It's very distinctive. But mm-hmm. are they trying to make it sound like this is an Anthony Bourdain character? I feel like that. It 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 definitely has that vibe. And he's obviously he he kind of looks like him generally. But like I mm-hmm. also feel like they're kind of styling him more so even. Yeah. That that was my first I was like, what are we doing here? Uh, when I saw him, I was it was yeah, int- very interesting. I'm curious, like what what the end of this is, especially given the Armand stuff, um, as well, and like, yeah, I I think more than almost anyone, I'm the most interested in like his future within, because he, he's changed so much comparatively. Like I think that Claudia will still end up dying, but it's a question of when within the adaptation. And all of that, but I'm like, what the fuck are you guys doing with Daniel? I'm very interested in him. Maybe they'll make it like the Vampire Chronicles parts unknown or something <laughs> like that. I know, like that very beginning, which is very interesting because it's like, am I listening to it? Is this real? Is this a commercial? Like the ad for the masterclass sounded like an Anthony Bourdain narration. And I was very, it was very interesting. I was a little put off by it, but when I realized that what they were doing, I thought it was great. But if you told me that Anthony Bourdain was in San Francisco in the 70s doing all the stuff that this character was doing, I would believe you. In fact, if you told me it wasn't what he was doing, I would say I do not believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. also really like this setup because I think, it, like you said, it allows them to directly and indirectly address like that first interview um, mm-hmm. and to really talk about the changes from the book and the film I think it's the last episode we watched, the third episode, where Louis talks about the odyssey of recollection. 
the idea that like we don't when we tell stories about our past, we're constantly reevaluating them. Memory is like a really tricky thing because, you know, we've all heard like if you ask like people who are at an event to tell the story of that event, you would get the number of stories equal to the number of people at the event. Everyone remembers things differently, but we don't really talk about how the the fact that memory also changes. If you ask somebody 20 years ago what happened, their answer is going to be different than it is now. And so I think that that is a very smart thing for them to do. I also really like the dynamic between Daniel and Louis in this, because in the book, it's very like, he's a timid boy who is like scared, but fascinated with all of this. And he occasionally will break into the story, but not often. But this Daniel is like a seasoned interviewer. Like he's challenging Louis on his facts. You know, like there's this, I can't describe to you how disturbing and yet funny the scene is where he's like, did you eat the baby? Did you eat the baby? It's so funny. Yeah. I think I, I think it's a really good decision to be able to not just like, yes, address the changes that they've made in the adaptation by having a second interview. I also think something that they do really well because they made all these changes is Doing a good job of showing until a certain point they don't play any of the audio or give you anything ten, like um, physical from the original interview. They do eventually, but they don't at the beginning. And so it's just like them kind of talking about, we did this, you put it in a book, we did whatever, you know. And it's very interesting... And I think they do a good job of building what that interview was like and what Daniel and Louis's relationship was like then and what their individual relationships to that event were. And like, it's obvious they haven't seen each other since then. And so like having to deal with all of that, I think they just do a good job of building that relationship such as it is. Without really having to be like, and this is how we feel about each other. Isn't that neat? And like, they do some of that, obviously, because they haven't seen each other. But like, that's not the whole thing. They're just like, yep, that's fucking weird that we did that. And it works really well. Um, At least for me, it works really well. This adaptation definitely embraces the mess of their relationship. Yes. Yes, uh, the the book girlies are very mad right now, and I have not watched the episode, so like, of of the episode right now, and I'm like, ooh, okay. But I think that this adaptation, so something that I really, and I I kind of tried to look into it when I was like writing my reviews for Movie John for TV John, but Anne has talked or had talked a couple of times. Uh, interestingly, in Lestat's voice and then also not in Lestat's voice, which I find very funny that she used to do that kind of thing, about whether or not things like, did Lestat convince Louis's brother to kill himself so that Louis would be primed for the dark gift? And she had said, no, like they hadn't met, like the timeline of it doesn't necessarily make sense in the book, but the show kind of rewrites the timeline and gives you much more of a like, yeah, but what if? Like, that's the kind of like dark thing we might be playing with in the show um, without actually being like, yes, it happened. It like allows the inkling that like this Lestat is 
not necessarily i i wouldn't want to say darker because like i think lestat is plenty dark within the source material but is capable of things that we might not have initially thought like that within this story which i think is a really smart choice to give space for that kind of adaptational choice for him it's interesting that in this adaptation they really want to talk about the power dynamic between the two of them and the fact that Lestat, at least so far in the series, his prime motivation for turning Louis, for giving him the dark gift, is that he's in love with Louis, but also he doesn't want to be alone. Mm-hmm. And, But the problem with that is, is that he can't, won't, or doesn't care about the power dynamic between them, both as someone who's a lot older than Louis, someone who is white, and Louis is black and mm-hmm. in the US in in you know the late the late 19th early 20th century he doesn't care about using some pretty recognizable emotional manipulative tactics to get Louis to be in this relationship with him and so yeah. that, that that's not in the book like that is not something the book i mean the book does want to talk about how Lestat is an asshole to Louis but it doesn't want to talk about the intricacies of power dynamics in that way. You could argue, which I think is kind of the argument the show is making with the device, like the the second interview device, that like that's not the way Louis wanted to look at their relationship. And so it was not a thing that he wanted to talk about either. Like Anne is per- perhaps as an author not interested in talking about it, but Textually, you could say Louis is also not interested in talking about it, but the Louis of the second interview of the adaptation is very interested in talking about it, and Daniel is interested in poking into that conversation as well, which I just think is like it it being I, the framing device is just so freaking good, like it really works. It's really good, especially in. In the fourth episode, they do the thing with Claudia's diaries. So Claudia is the one telling the story. And so, like, you see things from a different perspective that, like, perhaps if Louis were telling that version of that event, would he tell it differently? And so, like, everyone gets to be unreliable in their very specific kinds of ways. And... It's it has even more attention drawn to it. It has a bigger spotlight on it because of the way that the show is using it and functioning within it than perhaps the book or the original movie even had. I well, I think the other thing too, like you said, is that Louis says several times in the second interview that it took him a long time to come to terms with his sexuality and what that meant. And so that can also, I think, play into this like reluctance to remember things. Mm -hmm. that happened like you know oh like that was just that wasn't really part of the relationship or that wasn't important or you know like whatever because that was just a phase or you know whatever it is that Louis was doing to rationalize it at the time and so I do think that it's interesting that you pointed out that this show is very queer and that they do have sex and you know it's not just the weird mind sex that that Anne Rice wants us to think that vampires have I do think it's fascinating. I'm excited to see what happens with Claudia um, because I, you know, you pointed out that the races, they've changed Louis's race. They've changed Claudia's race. I have to say that Rice's novel is very white in Mm -hmm. ways that I don't even think she realized 
because it was a hundred years before the show, there's slavery, like Louis is a slave owner, and that never is like reckoned with at all. There's a lot of depictions as brown people as being irrevocably other, um, which I think comes from that literary tradition that she's trying to be in. I don't know if it's like from her specifically, but you know, if you read 19th century texts, that's the way they talk about brown people. And so her trying to like imitate that may have led to that particular tone. But the interesting thing to me on this reread was the realization that Claudia is supposed to be, we're supposed to think that it's fucked up that Claudia is the way she is because she's the embodiment of white feminine innocence. Like the Mm -hmm. book will not shut up about her blonde hair and her blue eyes and her perfection and, uh, you know, how she's just, she's so innocent looking. She's so beautiful. Like she's the most beautiful, but like she's capable of, murdering people and you know tricking people into going with her so she can murder them and she's more calculating than louis is she's more calculating than lestat is in a lot of ways and so that's supposed to be the perversion is that like she's this like white innocent who's been like made into something that's other that's monstrous i'm interested to know how that will work with claudia not being that embodiment how they're going to unpack this character in a different way yeah i so far i really like claudia they've made her older she's about 14 i think is the age that they've given her i i also something something else that i and you would obviously remember this closer than i would because you just read the book but the thing that i find really interesting is and it, it goes into what we were talking about earlier with like them doing the father daughter thing rather than the, the thing that Anne Rice was doing in the book. Is like in the show, Louis finds her because they have there's like the riot, this like riot that's happening in the black district, and he finds her and he ends up being like Lisette still makes her, but like. It is, like, a Louis thing. Like, he brings her and is, like, save her. Like, do this thing for me. Versus, like, as I remember it in the book, it's very much, like, a Lestat manipulation tactic of, like, I've made this person and now we have a child and I, we are, we are trapped together into a little family is what I remember. Yeah, that's basically how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's supposed to also prove, he, like, uses it as a way to prove to Louis that he's a monster, too, because he drains uh, Claudia and then Lestat turns her and so it's supposed to be like see you're just as fucked up as I am now we're in this fucked up family <laughs> little family yeah and so like it's interesting like the change to that I think is interesting and and because they do like the mind reading stuff like and I don't remember how it necessarily works in the books but like like Lestat and they 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 do this early in the show that like Lestat can't read Louis's mind. And then when he makes Claudia, he can't read Claudia's mind, but Lis- but Louis and Claudia can read each other's minds. So they have this connection outside of Lestat. So they definitely have like very much a father daughter relationship in the show that I think is going to be brutal when we get to like, w- however they're going to adapt because I, I, I don't feel like Claudia can live because of, like, the story. I, I, right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, like, her being 14. So, like, it's... 
I'm interested in how they're going to talk about because like obviously part of like the monstrosity of Claudia is like she's a child forever. She can never be seen as an adult. Like both like it's terrifying from like an outside perspective, but also from an internal perspective for her. And it only I think makes her more monstrous, more vicious, more angry as time goes on and she's still like as young as she is and can't age and can't do anything. And having Claudia in the show be 14 and she, you know, has a relationship, it doesn't end well. They like she is able to do the teenage things, but obviously she also can't be an adult. Like there's still that kind of terror, but it's very different. Like it's pubescence forever rather than childhood forever. Different kind of fear. Still terrifying. It's just a little different. What do we think about Lestat in this version? I like him. I think <laughs> Sam Reed Sam Reed is so interesting because Sam Reed is a super fan. Like he's a he's a big Vampire Chronicles, but specifically Lestat fan. As a fun side note, he had to first audition in French before they cat like they had all the Lestats audition in French because they wanted to make sure that they could do it and do it well, which I think is very funny. But yeah, I, I think he's he is a mess. He is a big old bisexual mess. And I I think it's fun. I think he's fun. I mean, he's scary and whatever. But I think he's, he's fun. Yeah, I actually, like, because I, I am also bi, I, I got a little angry with Louis in the second episode when he was like, we don't belong together. I'm queer and you're whatever you are. And I'm like, stop it with the biphobia, Louis. Like, come on. Like, come on, Louis. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just like, oof. Come on, baby. But yeah, I I I think he's great. I think he is exactly like the the thing about Lestat always has to be that he has to be charming enough that you can understand why people let him get away with shit. Mm-hmm. And I think that that the character and the actor are doing a great job of making him terrifying and yet lovable at the same time. Like he's not he's not erring on either side too much, which I appreciate. Yeah. I don't know. I I keep watching this as I tell you. You know when you get talking about the bisexual mess i'm like oh yes he is and and then there are other things that happen in the show it very much reminds me of of eric northman oh yeah another true brett led uh rough there yeah. another quote-unquote hot mess yeah <laughs> right and then, like it's funny because the way that you know that these are good characters inhabited by good actors is you make me interested in a character that i am profoundly uninterested in like that's the mark of you're doing something good, and and I would say that you know what what Alan Ball did with um with Eric, in um or whomever else was molding that character in the later seasons of the show, very good job. So where do we what what do we think about where the show will go? What do we think about uh, season two, which it's already been renewed for? For it's interesting because it um season one is only seven episodes. Which is a fucking weird number. Don't know why they did that. But it's only seven. I imagine or hope that season two will be longer. I'm hoping ten episodes would be great if we could get a normal number in there. Eight even (laughs) would be good. I mean, it's still a full season plus a Christmas special in BBC time. So we're doing okay. That's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious where... 
in the story, this season will end. I, d- I don't imagine that we'll hit, like, Claudia dying. Like, I don't think that stuff is going to happen until, I'm hoping, until, like, at least season two or or maybe season three if we get more seasons. I was hoping that they would do, like, a book a season. But now that I know it's seven episodes, I bet you that's where they're going to. And then they'll do the back half of the novel in season two. I am curious to know if they will eventually do, like, the vampire Lestat or if they will try to integrate some of that material into, like, like bring bring that material into, like, the interview timeline. I don't know. Mm. It'll be very interesting to see where they go from there. It, it's interesting because when it was originally the Brian Fuller show or even when you're looking at Christopher Rice being, like, the vampire Lestat is what we'll call the show. show like, that makes sense for adapting multiple books, like, just, like, from a title perspective. But calling it Interview with a Vampire, you'll have to either, yes, like, bring stuff just, like, into the timeline and be like, it's part of it. Or you just have to be like, and now we're continuing on. And Louis is still there because he's still there, but... We're going to retitle the show Cougar Town. <laughs> <laughs> or, here's a thought, Lestat kidnaps Daniel and then they have a new interview. <laughs> like, he's like, wait, 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 like, let me tell you my, my side of the story. <laughs> And that's the vampire Lestat is him telling that that would be very yeah, funny. Yeah, that would be that would be hilarious. I love that. That would be yeah, so funny. Yeah, I think this show is very successful. I am really excited to see where they go from here. Me too. Now, let's move on from the vampires oh, <laughs> and talk about her other series that eventually becomes intertwined with the Vampire oh, Chronicles. Boy. Sam, you read The Witching Hour. I did. What's The Witching Hour about? This is the one I have the well, least knowledge of. Well, friends, if vampires aren't your thing, here's a novel that's a, over a thousand pages long about witches. Not a vampire in sight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, I again, I was told many, many years ago that I might like this a little bit more than the Vampire Chronicles. In some ways, that's true. In some ways... Nuh-uh. Um, I did not read this for many, many years, obviously, until the last month, but I had intended to. I've actually bought this book more than once. Uh, you know, it's always been on my mind to read, so I was glad we wanted to do this. So I said, let's do it. Let's read it. It is the first novel in a trilogy. So it was published in 90. So that's after Queen of the Damned. So she writes Queen of the Damned, the Witching Hour in 90, The Body Thief in 92, and then the two sequels to The Rich, uh, Witching Hour, Lasher in 93, and Taltos in 94. And then she continues on with The Chronicles, just so you know. So you also know, as of two months from now, you'll be able to see the adaptation of what must be the first part of this novel, on AMC Plus. <laughs> Unlike Interview with the Vampire, there's like seven seasons in a movie in this one book. And they will not have to change the title. Although they did not call it The Witching Hour, they correctly titled it Mayfair Witches. Which is a much more all-encompassing title like The Vampire Chronicles or The Vampire Lestat. So, how could I tell you about this book in a few minutes? Well, I can't. But let's try anyway. This book is a haunted house mystery. It's inspired primarily by The Turn of the Screw, 
But the fact that it's a haunted house book is, even though it's maybe one of the major themes of the book, it's only a small part of the book. It's really about three main characters. First main character that we meet, who is the least important of the main characters, is Aaron Leitner. He is a member of the secret society, the Talamasca, which are introduced in the Vampire Lestat, by the way. They are they are run through all of these books. They're a secret society, part detective, part historian. They jacked the Templars and then sold them out and got them executed, and that's how they got all their money. Neat story. <laughs> uh, it's, funny how these, it's funny how Templars always show up in these kinds of stories. Like you can't tell a story about supernatural creatures or mythology without somehow the Templars becoming involved. No, but if you'll remember for our conversation two years ago on this very podcast, they're not always bad. Eh. But they were in this version. So that's fine. I, uh, my, my point, I think, still stands. <laughs> but you were, I think you were proven wrong during that conversation, as a matter of fact. The second character is Michael Curry. He is a New Orleans local, poor Irish Catholic kid from the poor side of town. He is the hometown hero done good. He was the star athlete, you know, brought the parish money and renown for a little while. He became an architect slash contractor in San Francisco. Why does that matter? You'll see maybe. Um, it sounds like a description of her writing style. You'll see maybe. It's it's like, I. what is the straightest, whitest, most manliest character I could write? It's this guy. And that's actually what she did. That that is that is a big deal. But the main character, the main main character is Rowan Mayfair, the thirteenth witch in a line of witches. There's that thirteen again. Pause pause for effect. Did she listen to Taylor Swift? Oh jeez. No. <laughs> okay. So I wrote these as a list out in the notes in case I needed to refer to things, but I I just I, I feel like this is like the Vampire Diaries when we talked about that last week. I'm just going to monologue about some things for a while. And by the time I'm done, you know, approximately 5% of the book. <laughs> but, but basically, so Rowan Mayfair is the 13th in a line of witches. The first one, and I won't go through them all, but basically this is like an outlander situation. She was in a henge in Scotland and became a witch and she was burned at the stake. And so the way that this novel goes is that an agent of the Talamasca, Peter Van Abel, rescues this first witch's daughter from also being burned. He does, but she still manages to get outed as a witch later and then burned. Right. Oh, shucks. So this, yeah, oh, I know. Happened. These things happen. Well, the first one was in Scotland. <laughs> the second one was in France. It's fine. <laughs> but anyway... The, the third witch in line, Charlotte, is the one who, much like an outlander, moves her act over to the quote-unquote America's uh, contemporary Haiti, where she starts up a plantation. And so this is where things get super fun. So Peter Van Abel, the, the, uh, the member of the Talamasca who saved the child after her mother got burned and then was there when the child got burned. So he's going to go and make sure this doesn't happen to the third in line. He doesn't want it to happen a third time. Well, 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 
this is where it gets super fun, as I said, because Charlotte, third in line, entraps Peter and uh, then makes her father a child. So this guy's been in, this guy has adored grandma, been in love with mom, and may have had a sexual encounter or three with her, and then had a child by the granddaughter. But wait, there's more. <laughs> this is like Targaryens meet. Now, so we're going to, I'm going to skip over, I'm going to skip over number four, except to say that number four had a twin brother and the twins had a child. Oh, really, Targaryen? Oh, yeah, then. yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then we have a, a French dude who gets involved, and so there's no direct incest happening there. That's fun. But there is, uh, as you might know from history, some riots in Haiti. But because the Mayfair family, Anne Rice, you're you're doing something really weird here, uh, because they they loved the family so much. The slaves did. They like gave them the heads up so they could relocate. Oh more. no! That's that's totally and and create viable. a plantation. Yeah. So so now they have a plantation, and and I gotta tell you, I'm gonna skip ahead here, but but basically, one of the witches is not the result of inbreeding, but she's the one who starts. Uh, as I say here, she is the winner of the Victor Frankenstein Award for trying to reanimate dead flesh. So there's a lot going on in this book, yeah, and is what we, you're telling me. Well, and we move down to Mary Beth, who is everyone's favorite trans version of the, you know, part of the Mayfair Ooh. family. Yeah, yeah. She uh, she goes out. She's very tall. So she grows. She goes out dressed as a man. And basically all of New Orleans accepts her that way. Interesting. She is all the bisexual. Like it, she is the bisexual mess of the novel. Oh, you have to have at least and, one. And, and everybody loves her. Everybody talks really, 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 you know, well about her. There is a witch who is actually a, a man, not a woman, because eventually that can happen. You know, it's like once in a generation, it's supposed to be a woman, but it was a man. It was Julian this time. There is a witch who says, or would-be witch who says, no, I'm not doing that. Get the fuck out. And so the next person in the generation has to get picked instead. So on and so forth. We have the mother of Rowan Mayfair all the way down. She is unhappy about being a witch. So she gets Randall McMurphy to vegetablehood, which is one, one person in the family's way of like killing the curse. It doesn't work. I have told you very little about this novel. I have just told you extremely little. It seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? <laughs> pause. pause so this much is, going this is on. Like, so this is her attempt to do the same thing yeah. as the interview with the vampire, except for through generations because the witches are not immortal. Right. Is, do I have that right? So it's yeah. like 200 years, but it's like a family. Right. And so... One of the other things that lurks beneath the surface, you see this in the very first chapter of this extremely long book. There is a well-dressed gentleman who some people can see sometimes. His name is Lasher. He might be the devil. And he is the source, their magic. He came through the henge in the very beginning of this history, which is told all out of order. It's very modernist in a way. Like it by the end of the book, you have a pretty clear idea of what's happening and why. 
you know, something like Lasher's intention isn't clear toward the end of the book, but once it's clear, it's like, oh, all of this makes so much sense now. So it can be a very, very big, confusing mess because, you know, I, I, you know, Tessa, you mentioned earlier about how Rice does the narration in Interview with the Vampire. This is nothing like that. Interesting. The, the book is divided into four parts. The first one may as well be a short story collection. The first one introduces us to Aaron by way of a conversation with a psychiatrist. The second chapter introduces us to Michael, who is like, he's, in, he's this dude in San Francisco. What the hell does this have anything to do with witches, right? And you have chapter three, which is about a priest who is a narrative device to get us inside the house to tell us about it. The fourth chapter is about Rowan and how she meets Michael. And then we actually get some narration which culminates in the decision for Rowan. And I'm not even going to tell you why she's in San Francisco, not New Orleans. You'd have to read it to find out or watch the show on AMC starting in January, 2023. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part two. I told you, Aaron, this Talamasca guy is a really important character because he has an entire written history of the Mayfairs all the way back to the beginning, just like this recorded historian's account. And that is the majority of the book, is Michael reading Aaron's book, like stopping to get some coffee or take a tea break. We occasionally get a five-page chapter interlude about Rowan's plane getting delayed at DFW. The expression on Sam's face right now is not amused. Yeah. So part one is called Come Together. Part two is called The Mayfair Witches. Part three is called Come Into My Parlor which is where things happen. (laughs) It's a book, you guys. It's a novel where things happen. And everything was going fine until part four, The Devil's Bride, which I would like to review in the following way. Yikes. Not great, Bob. (laughs) Not great. (laughs) Is it worse than mind sex? Yes. Okay. Yes. I will say, when you read a book, and you say the incest is not the most controversial thing. It's a thought. I mean, ironically, it is the same thing as George R.R. R. Martin. If you're fine with incest, perhaps you'll be fine with rape. Not in this book, I'm not. Yeah. I, I don't, I think Anne Rice can write well about a lot of things. Gay vampires. Not this. But I, as you I, pointed out, this is very Southern Gothic, though. It, like, she's no, dealing with themes is. that are like that. And 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 it's 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 a big, messy book that is sometimes very good, and then it just takes a nosedive at the end. It is Southern Gothic. It's Anne Rice trying to do something other than write about vampires. It is more of a love letter to New Orleans and the Garden District than what we see in Interview, which is still very much a love letter for New Orleans. This is that more. What about the Garden District? Okay, okay. So I actually I, am not very familiar yes. with New Orleans. I've never been. Ask me about the Garden District. But so I love reading Garden about it. The Garden District is the neighborhood that Anne Rice lived in. And as I told you, she had to move away because her fans were disturbing the peace so much, right? And, and what's funny about it is, and there's actually, if you Google these three names together, the three names that I'm about to say, if you Google this, you will find 
articles about what I've been telling you about. This is all real. Because it blew my mind when I found out who two of her neighbors were in the Garden District. So it's real rich to know. And this is kind of what made Anne Rice bitter about her fans. When you live in the same neighborhood as Trent Reznor and your fans are the obnoxious ones, what does oh that say God. about you and your fans? Really? You know, and, and you didn't get upset when Archie's kids, Peyton and Eli, were throwing footballs around outside. Because, yes, that is the neighbor of Anne Rice I went to college with, Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning. Ooh. <laughs> that's so wild. I know. I wonder when if I that's found why that out. Lestat is a musician. Maybe it's because yeah. Trent Reznor lived next Isn't door. Isn't that fascinating? Anne Rice, can, and, and as I've always said, this is the thing that this is the sentence that came out of my mouth when the when the person who blew my mind with that fact said, "Can you imagine what a barbecue at Anne Rice's house where Trent Reznor and Archie Manning bring the sides? Can you imagine that? I wish I had been there." <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, man, indeed. What a weird world we live in. That And that's what the witching hour is, really. I mean, it's like an amalgamation of all the weird things that makes that make Anne Rice a good author, a problematic author. Are you looking forward to the show? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. I want to see what kind of crazy they turned this show, in, this book into. <laughs> I mean, wow. I just... This was a prompt that I enjoyed a lot. I don't know how to productively productively talk about this book other than just to say if anything I said to you sounds like either interesting or a train wreck that you can't look away from, it is both of those things. I, I think it's going to be a show that you can't miss. I think it's going to be important to watch that. You know, the Talamasca, the Secret Society, is the connection, the original connection to the Vampire Chronicles. Later, many books into the Vampire Chronicles, Mayfair start popping up. So one of the things, you know, talking about why Anne Rice was so concerned about the rights and adaptation is she wanted somebody to take the Mayfairs and the vampires because... They are going to start playing together. And I think that has a lot of room, not just for fuller adaptations that expand. But I don't know. There's even room within this universe for somebody like Christopher to begin to show how these two worlds intersect in some more interesting ways than just in her novels. So that's that's particularly interesting. The only other thing I will say, and I think this is going to get solved in adaptation, but, you know, I've told you my issue with her quote-unquote homoerotic male gaze. She does not do straight sex very well. Which is funny because she <laughs> did used to write erotica under a pen name yes. for a long time. And I've always I been know. interested in reading some of it, but I also am like, is it bad? I feel like it's probably yeah, bad. It's like a Sleeping Beauty something. something. Yeah. There's before, like a... Like revived or revisited or something like that. Yeah, I think there's like... Yeah. like, Yeah, I'm just like, I don't know that I'm interested in that. But cool, cool. I've always been... I've been interested in the thought of it, but... Are you telling me that Anne Rice was one of the originators of 
MLM. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, that's that's it. I mean, like, it's hard to get mad at fan fiction writers when you wrote slash fiction. That's what's so baffling about it. I I get uh, I I guess I get the George R. R. Martin being mad about it. I don't. But like, who who gives a shit? But like, Anne, I'm baffled. I'm confused. I think to anticipate your last question, Tessa, if I may, please do. I don't think a lot of what Anne Rice wrote has aged well. That is, that may be a take that if you touch it, you'll get freezer burn. I don't know. But I don't think so. I don't think she has aged well as an author. I think that her works can be adapted and can be adapted well. I think we're, we're seeing the beginnings of that. I hope that we don't have a Darabont-esque disaster at the end of the first season of Interview. Famously, uh, Darabont left after the end of the first season of The Walking Dead, and it became a completely different show. That's what happens when you spend millions of dollars more than you're supposed to on a season, but it's also very good. No, I mean, right. And I mean, there's, there's several things that are problematic about him as a person. Arguably, the show wasn't bad after that. It was just different. But I think because Christopher Rice is involved, we're going to get a more consistent vision. So I have hopes for AMC's next big endeavor instead of the trash fire that is The Walking Dead. But I think what's going to have to happen to make these both of these shows that I think will eventually be connected. You do think they'll cross over. That was my next question, uh, actually. No, 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 no. I don't mean crossover. I mean connected. Okay. I think they're going to share the same DNA. Like they're going to be shows that operate under the different name, but it's kind of like it's more than Buffy and Angel. I'd say it's more than that. It's more seamless than that is what I would expect. It's what I think a good adaptation adaptation would be. So I think she's out of date, but I think a competent hand can bring her into the future with this adaptation. And that's exciting. Let me turn that question to you, Emily. What do you think about the relevance of Anne Rice today, uh, both her written work or just the, the world that she created in terms of adaptation? I think Sam's right. I I think that Anne, as like her actual text, is pretty out of date. Like I think, especially by, I think by the modern standards of almost any time after she was writing it, it just progressively has aged like worse and worse uh, milk. But I think that what she has inspired in people and in pieces of especially like genre fiction, vampires, witches, etc., has lived on. And that has also gone through. It's like, like, I love Buffy. Buffy is my favorite show. But like Buffy is a mess and is also um, has aged like milk in a lot of regards. Um, Not in every (laughs) regard, but in a lot of regards. But Buffy has begot other things that are less problematic that have the DNA while recognizable DNA while being something new and better that will inevitably also age like milk in the future too, hopefully. Like the hope that we keep getting progressive, more progressive. I think that her, like what she has done for specifically vampire fiction, I think is you you can't understate it enough. Even if 
she doesn't necessarily like her work after within even within that same vampire world doesn't even stand up to what she had like the cultural legacy she had created for herself without her knowing that that was going to be what was happening um which i think is also really interesting that like you can create a cultural legacy that you yourself cannot stand up to even in the future yeah but i think adaptation is definitely where we're going to see everything come into the future which is really exciting now, there was an Easter egg in interview, uh, the show, for Mayfair Witches, because in the very first episode, you get Louis teasing his sister and saying, if you if you want to jump over a broom, you should go over to this street and hang out with the Mayfair Witches. Mm-hmm. Do we think there will be a crossover? I mean, Sam has already answered that question. I guess I should ask you, Emily. Do we think there will be a crossover, or do you think we'll see characters sort of like move between some of these shows? I think so. I I'm curious as to when. I think I think it's very much a question of when, because like I do know, Lestat ends up eventually within the story of the books. I think he falls in love with one of the witches later. Like he gets like obviously they come in, he goes in, etc. I guess they mostly come in if there's only three books. But um, I think we will. It's I'm curious when and to what extent. I, I haven't done a lot of research into the show, um, the Mayfair Witches show, as to, like, who is showrunning it, who's doing what. Obviously, I think Christopher is probably, like, on high, show, ultimately showrunning the entire thing Kevin Feige style. But I don't know who's actually, like, day-to-day showrunning that show and, like, what that relationship maybe is like with the guy who's showrunning Interview with the Vampire. But I'd be really curious. I'm I'm so curious what they're doing over there. I think it's going to be really interesting, whatever they do. I'm just excited to watch these shows. Like both of them are going on my immediate like watch list when they like week to week watching, which is like a high bar for me because I don't actually watch a lot of shows week to week anymore. So that that's I think a marker of quality. Anything else we want to say about Anne Rice before I wrap up? We exhausted the topic. <laughs> No, but we've been going on for a while. A while. Um, yeah, we haven't gone on as long as Anne Rice probably would if she had a podcast. Nope. But oh can you imagine? No. Yeah. <laughs> this is the end of Spooktober 3, Son of Spooktober. Join us in a year for Spooktober 4, The Ghost of Spooktober. Yeah, we had to look up earlier what exactly the order was. The next one is Ghost. If we so. guys, if we do this for like three or four more years, we will get to uh, Abbott and Costello meet Spooktober. <laughs> if we keep going long enough, <laughs> so I listen, review, subscribe, do all the things, so we can get eventually to that joke. We're very pro doing things for bits here, so I, I would, we would appreciate that for sure. But we are moving from Spooktober to November, which doesn't get said in a funny voice. We're doing our first ever Monkey Off My Backlog November. We are starting with the 1940s noir, specifically the lady from Shanghai, Laura, and Double Indemnity. And we're going to be joined by Jarrett from the Wild Pretty Things podcast. And, and by the way, because it has been noted and we did continue the streak this week. The streak of name-dropping Ryan in the episode will end in two weeks' time. 
<laughs> when Ryan himself is on the podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> there you are. Emily, where can people find you online, on TV, John, in their headphones? Where can people find you? You can find me on, I think, all social media with just my full name, Emily Mazer, M-A-E-S-A-R. I write a monthly column about Star Trek on TV, John, for, I don't know, three more months. It's It was my yearly project for this year. Yeah, and then... I think that's it. I mean, I'm doing random stuff for TV John too, but that's my consistent thing. And definitely be sure to check out Emily's column on the interview with the vampire show. Yeah, that one too. Yep. That's a yep. thing I'm doing. <laughs> yep. Correct. Be sure to go to movie John, check out TV John and that specific set of articles. Sam, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. <laughs> eventually i will have other things to plug but yes. not yet you can find me on twitter at the by paradox you can also find me on my other podcast nanny Ogg's book club where my friend nigel and i are reading through all 41 of terry pratchett's discworld novels you can find that on twitter at nanny's book club and on instagram at nanny Ogg's book club you can also check out our second weekly podcast on this feed where we do a recap of a television show that the other person has forced us to watch. We just wrapped up Sam Watches Star Trek, um, the first season of The Next Generation. We are about to start our recap of the fifth season of Lost. So Tessa Watches Lost. You can find that on the same feed, Monkey Off My Backlog. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately what you would like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.